When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Uh, how's your hangover? Uh, yeah, I'm still recovering. I'm still recovering from the... Two two bottles of Kingfisher beer. You see, it takes me sort of a number of days to recover. Oh, so so Ed is talking about our social interaction the other night. I thought you would have been at Paul Dacre's, the editor of the Daily Mail's oh, party yeah, last night. The invite got lost in the post. I think <laughs> it's weird that, isn't it? Unbelievable. How mm. to round off your day if you're Theresa May? <laughs> You've got the sort of pretty Patel disaster, and then you go and go and have dinner with. Paul Dacre, for, to celebrate. What was it? So, so, um, so one of the journalists say, oh, Theresa May should have sacked her. She shouldn't have allowed her to resign. It but, took six minutes, apparently, the conversation. And is that... That was refl- probably five minutes, 45 seconds of Theresa May's silences and 15 <laughs> seconds of dialogue. <laughs> she does seem like a lady who's, uh, un- who's comfortable with an uncomfortable silence. I don't know whether she's comfortable with an... Un- she might be uncomfortable with an uncomfortable silence. I, mm. I don't know. Mm. Did you ever have to sack anybody? Uh, I don't think I described it that way. Right. But yes. Well, so you... you, Move you people them, on, yeah. You hand them the resignation It's not easy, letter. honestly. It's not easy I to do. I can't imagine you doing that. Jeff, yes. you're fired. <laughs> um, uh, no, it's not easy. Honestly, um, t- Tony Blair used to say to me, uh, it was the h- hardest thing about doing the job. I mean, it really isn't nice. Mm. But you feel, human, you feel humanity for, for people after all. Mind you, I think Boris Johnson should be fired. I mean, honestly... He, he it, must be thanking his lucky stars for Pretty Patel. But also, it's really interesting about this, which is he never apologised, right? He didn't apologise when he made that outrageous and awful comment about cert, you know, in Libya and about clearing away the dead bodies. He didn't apologise about this. Now, I think it is a Trump strategy. I think he has learned the lesson from Trump that you never apologise because apologising is a sign of weakness. Right. And that, 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 that he's basically, I'm ne- not for the 350 million, not for cert, not for this situation in terms of this poor woman in Iran, that that is his strategy. Now, personally, I think it's incredibly diminishing of him. But, but, but I can only think that it's, well, it's either the most extraordinary arrogance or and or it is a political strategy. You know that 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 apology equals weakness, and strength equals never ever. But Trump obviously never ever apologizes for anything, however appalling it is what he did. Have you had much to do with Boris? Uh, you know, I, I the the longest time I spent with Boris was on the bus 
the VIP bus going to the Olympic opening ceremony yeah. that got lost. I've never <laughs> this story has never been told actually because we all agreed a vow of silence because we thought it was slightly embarrassing. I know but you're speaking bu- out. The bus. I'm now. I'm now telling my story. The bus got incredibly lost, um, and it had the head of the Metropolitan Police, the head of the army, uh, <laughs> Boris Johnson, the Mayor of London, uh, me incidentally, and various <laughs> other dignitaries. I think Tessa Jowell was on the bus, yeah. and basically, so she was in charge of the Olympics. Um, and and it just got completely, and the driver got completely lost. Um, and basically, I spent the whole time taking the piss out of Boris because uh, about Cameron and how he thought he was superior to Cameron, didn't he? And you know, yeah. he couldn't bear the fact that Cameron was prime minister, uh, and he sort of took it in reasonable part. Um, but I think at that point, people thought very differently about him. I think they thought about him. Okay, he's a decent human being. He doesn't quite have the same arrogance as Cameron. I think people have seen him in a really new light. Yeah, yeah. Then. But was there a sing song on the bus? No, I think we just all agreed that it wasn't a good idea for the Olympic <laughs> opening ceremony if we went on and on about how the bus got lost. <laughs> um, I sort of feel now we've got a sort of five year rule. It's kind of a, you know what I mean? Yeah, sort statute of, okay, of limitations statute or something. Limitations, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or the, um, uh, what's yeah. It, like Official Secrets Act yeah. after a certain exactly. amount of time it exactly. expires. Exactly. Um, so, as Ed, Ed alluded to before, we did have our first reasons to be cheerful social event Knees this up. week. And I, th- I think it was a success. Yeah. Despite the fact that going out with Ed is a little bit like, like going out with a millennial in that you can't stop looking at your phone. Oh dear, sorry about that. He's checking the podcast stats, to be fair. No, I was just <laughs> checking out. I, I, look, I was, you know, I was with my podcast family and we were, I was just checking the stats. I mean, I don't, I just, there's nothing wrong with that, is there? I was just wanting to say how much even better we were doing compared to, you know, we were celebrating 200,000 downloads, but by the, in the course of the evening, I think we got to about 230,000. Yeah, yeah. Um, so shall we talk about what we will be talking about this week? You've, you've, uh, you've become very excited about this in the course of the week. So I've got a quiz question for you. Okay. Who invented Monopoly? So the story... It relates to what we're going to be talking about. So the story goes that it was a husband and wife and they went into the board game manufacturer to pitch the idea and they didn't have any playing counters so she used the charms off her charm bracelet and that's where... Wrong. Okay, 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 okay. Wrong, wrong, wrong. I mean, that sounds apocryphal. So this is really interesting because it's got a sort of feminist side to this. The, the the general mythology is it was invented, and people have to bear with me here because it does relate to our topic. It was the general view is it's related, invented by a guy called Charles Darrow in the 1930s. He dreamed up Monopoly, but it's been recently discovered that is actually untrue. That it was actually invented by a, a woman called Elizabeth Magi, M-I-M-A-G-I-E. Uh, and she was given a copy of a book by her father, which was written in 1879. It was a book by somebody called Henry George called Progress and Poverty. And it was about landlords and land and rent and all of those things. And so she invented something which was called the la- she called the Landlord's Game in the early uh, 1900s. And she was a stenographer. And basically, she said this about the game. Um... Uh, it is a practical demonstration of the present system of land grabbing with all its usual outcomes and consequences. It might well have been called the game of life as it contains all the elements of success and failure in the real world. And the object is the same as a human race in general seem to have the accumulation of wealth. So basically, she invented this thing called the landlord's game. She did actually, I think, patent it. She applied for a patent for her game in 1903 uh, in her 1930, in the 1930, in the in her 30s, sorry. 
Uh, she represented the less than 1% of all patent applica- applicants at the time who were women. And it turns out this guy, Charles Darrow, and I'm not saying he didn't, he wasn't open about this. He played a version of this game and then appears to have invented it. And, she, and as wow. I say, it was called The Landlord's Game. So, and it, was, it was originally like a cautionary, a cautionary, cautionary tale warning tale. against it. it. Was a, I think there may have even been two different versions of the game. But you can, if you go online, I think we'll provide a uh, link to it. Um, we can, uh, uh, you can see her, bo- I think there's pictures of her, of the, of the board that she... This, that she this, invented. That's this pretty good. Fascinating. Isn't it? We've had the JFK papers released recently. Uh, we recently heard the true story of the bus on the way to the Olympic Park, and oh, no. now the truth about All the of origins life is of Monopoly. Here. So, we... so, so, uh, can I ask you when you're playing Monopoly, which piece do you choose? Oh, I've got a really interesting Monopoly story, by the way. Obviously, this is so conforming to stereotype. What board game did I play as a child? I mean, was there a socialist version of Monopoly? There was a yes, there was. There was a board game called Class Struggle, uh, and it was invented by a big Marxist called Bertel Ullmann. Uh, and basically, my father knew him. Uh, and I'm not saying we played this all that much, and I'm not sure it necessarily beat Monopoly. But he basically decided you should have a game called Class Struggle. I think there was a worker and a capitalist. <laughs> Uh, and all that. I, I actually, I, I don't know whether we've still got a copy of this game or whether anyone who's listening has got a copy of this. But you can actually, you can actually find it. Oh, on, that's wonderful. On Wikipedia oh, or wherever. So great. So there you go. Uh, so, um, so why are we talking about Monopoly, Ed? Right, uh, it, it's a long way around. We are talking about the land value tax, about how we tax land in this country. Now, I want to make a confession here. You know, I am a nerd, right? A policy nerd. I have always found it incredibly hard to get my head around this idea. This idea has been around, well, it's clearly been around for like more than 100 years. I think it started with Adam Smith um, and this guy, Henry George, and lots of other people. But I always found it hard to kind of get my, as I say, get my head around it. But this is is the week of the breakthrough. Um, And so we're going to be talking uh, about that. And we're going to be talking about it with Joe Sarling, who knows seems to know from what everyone says like more about this than most people and can actually explain to us why taxing land might be a good idea. And then also an Australian called Catherine Cashmore because they have land taxes in Australia. Um, so I, I hope to, by the end of this discussion, have sort of grasped, I, I'm beginning to grasp the land tax. Is, is, it, is the basic uh, thing behind it taxing, taxing wealth rather than income? That's the basic thing behind it. But I think beyond that, it's the idea that at the moment there's no penalty to sitting on land and not doing anything with it. Right. But, but you know, here's the other thing which is extraordinary, and this is what has started to make me quite passionate about this. You know, um, in like the 18-somethings, we knew who owned 98% of land or something from the registry. We now only know who owns 75% of land. So it's become more shadowy. It's become more shadowy. And so we'll get into, I think it sort of, it does relate to some of those issues, but but fundamentally it relates to the taxation of wealth, uh, the housing market, and, you know, the terrible shortage of affordable housing in this country. And then we've got something special, um, which we haven't yet recorded, um, but it, it will be on the podcast, I trust. We are, we're going to be interviewing David Axelrod, um, former chief strategist advisor to you to me uh um well former advisor to me but former chief you know chief man for uh, barack obama and and a really very very decent guy you know the thing people think about political consultants is they're sort of hired guns 
Axelrod is not a hired gun. You know, he is somebody who cares passionately about progressive politics, the country, well, the US obviously primarily, but, but about progressive politics around the world. He now runs something called the Axe Files. People will know um, in the US he's been doing that for some time. Actually, which is a podcast. Which is a podcast. Um, he is at the University of Chicago where he runs their Institute of Politics. And I think we'll have a very good conversation about American politics, progressive politics, Trump, you know, a year on from Trump uh, and all of that. Uh, do you have a reason to be cheerful this week? Why don't we start with you? Okay. So my reason to be cheerful this week is that I have I've, I've accomplished a feat of memory. I am now off book in as much as I don't need a script for the uh, for the book Are You a Cow, which my son loves having read to him. I can I can do it with no book in front of me. How long is Are You a Cow? Uh, I think between ten and twelve pages, I would say. Really? Of, yeah, just one sentence per page, but even so. Wow. Do you want a bit? Go on. I mean, I should have given you the book so that you, you could thought test I'd it. never yeah. ask. I'm a chicken. Yes, it's true. Tell me, tell me, what are you? That's that's the intro, and then we have: Are I'm you a, a chicken cow? Too. Are you a cow? Are you a dog? Are you a duck? Are you a frog? Does are he? What does he say when you do these things? His attention tends to drift a little bit. But the the salient point here, Ed, is if any big theatre producers are listening, I am capable of going off book. I have learnt a that whole is children's really book. impressive. But it's particularly that book that he likes, not uh, others. No, no. Are you a cow? That's the one. Not the others. No. Das Kapital. Das- <laughs> Did you have a picture book of Das Kapital? Yeah, I, yeah, I did. <laughs> so, Cartoon um, version. But I'm hurtling towards middle age and my memory is still intact, which well, is, really is surely, surely that a is good thing. That is a good yeah. So mine is, we didn't, we didn't compare notes beforehand, but mine is quite similar, actually, which is that it was my son Sam's seventh birthday this Aha. week. And we had this absolutely wild party for him with like 10 of his friends or eight of his friends. Um, and it was... And it's, what is extraordinary is the amount of noise that eight or ten seven-year-olds can make in an enclosed space. I mean, honestly, it was it was. I mean, it was literally they watched Shaun the Sheep, the movie. Was the entertainment that you laid on for them putting the TV on? I just sort of clear that <laughs> yes. up, right? Okay. Yes. <laughs> uh, um, but he loves Shaun the Sheep, right? Um, and the, honestly, the the. The relief. I mean, the the, min, the mini reason to be cheerful is the relief when they all left. I'm sorry <laughs> to say that. Um, and what was more boisterous, that children's birthday party or our reasons to be cheerful night out? Oh, oh no, honestly, oh, it is, you literally cannot believe this, the the you, the 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 level of sound. I mean, honestly, I thought that the the police actually drove by at one point, <laughs> and I thought to myself, I said to the kids, "Okay, oh, that is the police come to break up this party." <laughs> And it wasn't like they had that much. Sh- I mean, they did have like you know fruit shoots and popcorn and all that. Mm. But it was like the level of hysteria. It, it was absolutely amazing. I, mean, I guess we were all like that. But but you know, honestly, it's uh, it's a good job. It only comes once a year. Reasons to be cheerful: a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So this week we're talking about the idea of a land value tax and we're joined by Joe Sarling who works at a consultancy on land and tax issues and is an economist who has researched and written extensively uh, about these uh, land tax uh, questions. Joe, it's great to have you. I'm hoping you're going to be the explainer in chief, partly for me, <laughs> so I kind of properly understand this. Can you start by 
telling us just very basically what is a land value tax? Yes, absolutely. So essentially, it's an annual charge on the uh, value of the land, uh, not the properties or the assets that sit on top of it, but only the land. And the owner pays the charge and not the occupant or the tenant or so on and so forth. And just explain that distinction between the a tax on the value of the land and a tax on the value of the property. How should we think about that? Yeah, sure. It's really about uh, locational value and land has a locational value. Um, an asset like a property, for example, has a has a value in and of itself uh, because it can be used, it can be productively used, etc. But uh, land has a locational value. So a good example of this might be um, land in the middle of nowhere um, has a lower value uh, compared to land that's right by a station for example, or a road that has a lower value than in the centre of a city. So the locational value and the access to transport and amenities and those kind of things increases the value of the land. That's very, very helpful. Now, next question, why might it be preferable, and I know you're not coming here to advocate for this, but to explain it, why might it be preferable to have a land value tax compared to our current systems of property taxation? Mm. Okay, so um, there there are lots of different types of property taxation at the moment. Um, Some of them try and claim some of the gain in asset value, um, but a lot of them are probably unfit for purpose, and I think it's worth unpacking some of that uh, before we go into uh, the land tax. So a good example of a property tax might be something along along the lines of council tax or capital gains tax or business rates. Stamp duty as well. Stamp duty is a a great example. Um, If we took council tax, for example, that's a uh, charge. Uh, to the occupant, not the owner, but to the occupant, um, based on values of that property as it were in 1991. Now, that's all fine when markets don't change, but markets since 1991, particularly in London, have changed dramatically. Uh, So it's a charge, therefore, uh, on the occupant, and in London it's frequently the tenant, based on the value of the property that they happen to live in but they don't own, based on values in 1991. I don't think it's particularly fit for purpose. Stamp duty is a really good example of this uh, as well, where you have a scenario where you're uh, essentially uh, adding an extra charge to the uh, to the buyer of a property. Why would we want to kind of restrict or uh, withhold some of that uh, transactional uh, properties, I suppose? So, you know, you want a market that people can buy and sell quite freely and frequently in order to best allocate those resources. And uh, arguably, stamp duty doesn't necessarily do that. What uh, land value tax uh, does is it tries to capture some of the, uh, I suppose, unearned wealth, as it's known, uh, the locational value of land in and of itself. So a good example of this, coming back to uh, the example around um, the uh, uh, the land that's in the middle of nowhere. Imagine a house in the middle of nowhere, not connected to anything. It sits on a plot of land. And then along comes the state, along comes the public sector and says, right, um, we, we like the look of this. What we're going to do is we're going to invest in road and rail that sits uh, right by that house and look, that house has access to the nearby city. What happens to the value of the land there? It rockets. What happens to the value of the property there? Well, it may or may not rocket, but actually the land value rockets because people might want to buy that house. They can now work in the city because there's access, so on and so forth. So actually what you're trying to do there is capture some of the gain from the uplift in uh, land value uh, that's often publicly uh, stimulated through that investment, but would normally go to a private individual. What you're trying to do is uh, is stop that happening quite so much. So, so it's an ongoing tax. Would it be a yearly t- yearly absolute, tax? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It's an annual. It's an annual charge yep. uh, on the owner of the land. What What might be any other arguments for this 
uh, land tax. I mean, might you might you say it's a more progressive system because we haven't talked much about council tax, mm. but it's not a particularly progressive system. I think I'm no. right in saying lower income people pay those who actually pay it pay a greater proportion of their income uh, than higher income people. Absolutely. It's not a very it's not a very good tax from that point of view. No, no, you're absolutely right. So on the council tax example, because it's based on 1991 values, you have this perverse uh, setup and uh, situation where people who pay council tax in London would be paying significantly less as a uh, as a yearly charge than somewhere in maybe more of a struggling city outside of London or a struggling town outside of London, purely because the values have changed so wildly since 1991. Um, actually, when you revert back to 1991 values in London, you don't end up paying quite so much. So it's, it's an, an odd and perverse uh, situation. But you're right, there are a large number of examples. And as an economist, econ- I should say that economists love land value tax, love the theory of land value tax. It's, 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 it's known as the ideal tax for economists. And let me, because... set out, let me set out some reasons. So for example, it's very efficient, for example. So it doesn't harm economic activity. It just reallocates it to uh, best use. It doesn't stop any activity. It doesn't say, so, say to someone or incentivize someone not to invest or do something. It just it gets them which to taxing a property transaction might do. Absolutely, which uh, you're yeah. absolutely right in that. It's fair as you've, uh, or it's fairer that you've uh, highlighted there. It's significantly more progressive because richer and wealthier people tend to own more land than uh, poorer people, which is unsurprising. It has a revenue raising potential as well. So particularly prevalent in uh, over the last week's news, you can't hide land, yeah. but cash uh, and paradise papers exactly is much easier to, to do that. So uh, land is very difficult. So you know who owns it, which is a separate question. But if you know who owns it, then you can ch- uh, charge the tax and collect it. There's an increase in productivity because uh, I suppose uh, investment is more efficient. Uh, it rewards public investment because if you are pub- if you're the state and you invest multi-million pounds in road and rail, for example, up comes the value of the land surrounding it. They capture some of that value. So it's incentives for the state to, uh, to get involved. And I think one of the key things from an economics perspective, actually, is that it potentially shifts the burden of tax, if we, if we use the word burden, it shifts the burden of tax away from earned income and towards unearned wealth, which is an important distinction. So you've just described uh, a tax that people across the political spectrum can get behind. The idea has been around for like 150 <laughs> years or something. Yeah, absolutely. So, so why, why don't we hear more about it? I mean, why, yeah. why isn't it a thing? It's, it's, it's a good question that you've raised. Um, it, it's, there's a few reasons as to why it's it can be very difficult to implement i think is the uh, is the basic point in terms of the transition to it or just generally as an ongoing thing there's a transition period which is really important that i'll uh, highlight but there's three fundamental themes i think that i'd like to raise as to why it's so difficult to implement so let me run through a few of these public perception is a is a really important one with any tax nobody likes taxes when you introduce or at least think about a new tax people immediately think that this is an additional tax this is the daily mail the garden Garden, perfect example. Look what's happening. They just want to take our gardens. It's a land grab. You know, there's plenty of those kind of stories that have uh, gone around. So I think from a comms perspective, uh, it's not insurmountable, but you need to describe what taxes you're scrapping in order to have uh, this tax. Um, I think general perception of increasing taxation is uh, very difficult purely because how people, particularly in this country, view property. So they view property as a, an aspirational uh, product that they've worked hard for and strive to buy. And so now they have, and now you're taking a chunk away from me. And actually, I think one of the fundamental things in terms of 
public perception is actually how people have come to view their homes as their pension fund later on in life. So they may not be saving today because they've got a house, because they think they can sell it at a higher value and so on and so forth. And that has a really difficult implication. So, you know, why are you taking my pension? Why are you taking my granny's pension, for example, is difficult comms, I think, to, to get over. In terms of the mechanism of, t- of the tax, um, I think the f- there's, there's a few issues, but I think the fundamental one that I would raise is actually how do you value land and how often do you value land? So, for example, when you go around to an estate agent, you get a you see a house that you particularly like and you see a price for it. That price is for the property and the land. That's the two combined. They don't split it up. No one splits it up in those terms. So what you would need for a land tax is... Uh, some kind of valuation system to make sure that you know how much the land is worth. And is that doable? It is doable. So there's two routes. One is much more expensive than the other. Uh, The expensive one is you have an army of valuers up and down the country uh, just valuing land day in, day out. Well, You can can be a job creation scheme. Well, exactly. You can be the chief valuer, (laughs) Joe. Oh, that's nice. Chief valuer, Joe. I I can see the sash. (laughs) But with all the data we have, I know we're talking about residential property sales, but there's so much data now. Google Maps. You can even do it from Google Maps. There there must be some combination of that and an algorithm based on economic data. You absolutely could uh, estimate it, but whether you want to tax somebody based on an estimate and how what's much the other way charged. of doing it then you said there were two a really interesting way potentially yeah. you could overcome it is doing a self-valuation system and it sounds completely ludicrous but hear me out you submit a value uh, the, of the land that you think that you uh, that you own you would not be incentivized to put a very very high value on that because you'd be paying more tax on that so there's a, a ceiling if you like the floor of the, the the actual physical floor I suppose of this system is that you would be you wouldn't be incentivized to put zero pounds or one pounds because if you could build in a mechanism that says whatever value you put in the state could buy the the land off of you at that price mm. so you could say something like you know if your land is at, let's, let's say we know and your land is actually worth a hundred pounds right you might put in 90 pounds right. 95 pounds to try and pay less but you wouldn't put one pound because the state could buy it right in a no policy world, i.e., there's no policy that exists. You're building we're, utopia. From we're building scratch. utopia from scratch. Blank that's what canvas. we're doing, Jeff. Yeah. that's nice. One yeah. podcast at a time. Well, Je- you, you can Jeff tell. Land. Yeah. That's that's good. Yeah. Okay, and I've got my sash. Jeff <laughs> Land. This is going well. Um, in a no policy world, you would probably build a system like this. Land value tax is most efficient. It works for all the reasons that we've we've set out. It doesn't it doesn't really fit necessarily in in the world that we live in. So, for example, uh, decades of policy decisions have got us to the stage of where we're at today. Um, land has been bought and sold on existing rules. So to suddenly scrap that means a lot of that business transaction uh, would go under. The financial system is so entwined with land and property now that if you had a big bang approach, so let's say we introduce this policy tomorrow, a lot of that would crumble away. A lot of the leverage would fall and that would be really difficult to try and build. Now, that has a short term cost. And as we saw in the financial uh, crash, that had a huge short term cost from which you could build. But we have to understand whether that short term cost is worth the long term gain. So, So given that there are strong advantages of this, but it's really not straightforward to to do it what's the version that might be most likely to work if you were an advocate of land value tax what would you be championing um i think uh, a transition period would be useful for this um so i would probably start on land that most people could understand or would imagine to be better used than it's currently used could you just start with the big landowners could Um, you say it's only if you own a certain amount of land 
You you could start it with that, but then uh, that builds uh, could potentially build quite a, a groundswell of massive um, uh, opposition to that, and then you're involved in a fight. I would start. At least you're involved in a fight with a few, smaller number of people rather that, than the whole population. That's that's true, and that political strategy could work. My strategy would be incremental policy change. So, for example, I might say if you own land that's actually a car park in the city centre, for example, for argument's sake, um, is that the most effective use of that land? Whereas, you know, in London, for example, prices are sky high. And uh, is it worthwhile having a 400 car car park sitting there? Could you introduce some form of tax, some form of incentive levy, I suppose, to say, yeah, sure, you can keep it as a car park if you want, but we are going to be charging you X pounds each year on this. But but perhaps part of the reason or the, the way you get some groundswell to doing this is to solve a very big an obvious problem. And and the thing I didn't ask you about is, can this help solve the housing crisis? I mean, we know we've got a terrible housing crisis in this country. I mean, presumably, doing something like this might be quite an important part of tackling the housing crisis. I think uh, most economists, uh, including myself, would agree that uh, this kind of tax would certainly incentivise more homes being built. I think it would incentivise better use of uh, land. I think the most important factor, though, uh, is that actually it would incentivise densification. So, for example, if you're in central London, you're paying lots and lots in this charge from the land value tax. Actually, to recoup some of that, you're going to say, actually, this two-floor, three-floor house is not going to recoup enough money. I need to build six floors or seven floors so, so this not... might protect what they call the green belt and sort of other areas it might stop sprawl some people say oh, absolutely yeah absolutely it densifies the center more skyscrapers it, well, it, that would be one of the issues that planning might have to come into, which is an interesting point. What's the role of planning? Mm. Land value tax is very much a market intervention. And when there's a market intervention that dictates how to use land, it's really interesting then. What What's the use of planning, the planning system there, yeah. if, if this intervention is doing that? There's also an argument, though, that if the, if the, if the charge on land in the centre of a city is very, very high, and say you need to build, uh, for argument's sake, 20 storeys, uh, as opposed to five stories, is that good? Um, is, is that what people want? Now, from an economics perspective, it's absolutely what's what needs to happen. There's agglomeration benefits, there's benefits to using transport, it's much more efficient, it's greener, you've protected the green space, things are more in the middle as opposed to the sprawl, that's a very good thing. From a human perspective, you can imagine the uproar from NIMBYs and local communities who have bought a nice, you know, four-bed house somewhere and suddenly all these towers start going up. It's it's pretty it's pretty difficult. Bloody humans intervening in economics tell me (laughs) it's been the bane of my life thank you so much for coming in joe you are officially appointed the explainer in chief on the land value tax now to hear about how the land tax might work in practice now it is working in practice i'm joined by catherine cashmore who's president of an ngo called prosper australia that was originally founded as the henry george league he was one of the big uh, proponents early proponents uh, of the land tax she works in real estate as well Catherine, I think you're joining us from Israel uh, today. Thanks so much for joining us. Let, let's start with the basics because I'm sort of trying to use this as my education on the land tax. Land tax exists in some parts of Australia. Tell us a bit about your view of the Australian experience and what we can learn from it. Australia has a rich history of land taxation. Its history is probably a little bit better than what we have at the moment, but we still do have land taxation significantly for investors. Every investor in Australia that owns a property that um, has a value over a certain threshold has to pay a land tax. But during Australia's history, we had, for example, a federal land tax 
that was implemented at the time specifically to break up the large farming estates. These were people that owned acres and acres of land that was being unused and were effectively locking smaller farmers out of the market and also locking land up on the outskirts of the cities. So a federal land tax was implemented and was extremely successful at breaking up those large farming estates. But we do have land taxation and we do have the foundation for it if we wanted to implement it again. And tell us, why are you an advocate of land taxes? What's your big argument? Because you're obviously, uh, you know, you're president of Prosper Australia, which was the Henry George League. What, what, why, why do you think it's the right course for, for Australia to begin with? Yeah, well, land taxation is absolutely essential if you want to create a market of affordable housing. Land tax is the only tax that has no deadweight loss. And the reason for that is because land is fixed in supply. Usually when you tax goods, you either reduce the supply of goods or or the person that is producing those goods passes the cost on in the price of those goods. With land tax, when you tax the land, land is fixed in locational supply. You can't reduce its supply. So what happens when you tax the land firstly is you reduce its price. Additionally, because you're paying per year a land tax, it means that you can't really afford or it's very uneconomical to leave the land idle. So not only does it bring the land price down in terms of what people can pay for the land and what the banks will lend for the land, but it also stimulates the amount of accommodation, so increases supply, which means it then has a roll-on effect of bringing down rental prices because there's a greater supply of properties on the market. So a land value tax has a lot of benefits to it and it has no deadweight losses. It's only beneficial to the economy. So I listen to Joe, I listen to you, and I think to myself, here are these two incredibly smart people who make an incredibly compelling case for the land tax. And then... Both of you, in different ways, basically say it's a political nightmare. Um, now, you know, this show is called Reasons to be Cheerful. I'm trying to sort of get my head around how you square the sort of experts saying we should do it, but also warning us. What's what's the sort of way through this? You know, how do you steer between these these rocks that we that that we face on this? Do you think? Yeah. Well, that the the reason that it's it's incredibly difficult to implement is because people are used to buying a house, they're used to it going up in price each year, and they're used to using that money to retire on. That's where you have a problem changing the policy. But what me and I'm sure Joe are advocating, and that is if you want to create a fair and a just society, then you don't tax people's earned income. That is the income that they go out and they earn from producing things for the country, from doing hard work, from their sweat, from their toil, from their innovation, from their from the small startup. You don't tax that money. You allow them to keep that money. And instead, you tax the money that they don't earn. When the government build a train station close to your property, and your land price soaks up all the gains of the popularity that that train station brings, that is where you have a problem in the economy. Which country would you point to, Catherine, if not Australia, to say, was there anywhere at the moment where you would point to and say, they're doing it well? Yes, 
I would point to Singapore, because the most income tax you'll ever have to pay is around 7% for most earners. And you will get some of that back each year because Singapore finishes each year with a surplus. Additionally, it has over 90% home ownership rate. Now, these countries, they're not perfect. You can always find imperfections in them. But what does enable them to be better is that they manage to create affordable housing and affordable land. And that is absolutely vital if you want a thriving economy. Catherine, when you play Monopoly, which, which piece do you choose? Do you choose the car? Do you choose the little ship? The Scotty Terrier dog? I choose the Scotty Terrier dog. Scotty Terrier dog. <laughs> and it's been a long time, time since I've played Monopoly, but you do know the history of Monopoly, don't you? Yes, we, we've we talked about it. it earlier, yeah. You know, Jeff looks a bit like the Scotty Terrier dog, actually, <laughs> on uh, Monopoly. Catherine, so, thank you so much for joining us. You've been an absolutely excellent advocate uh, for the land tax. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. And listening to that uh, interview is Joe Sarling, who is still with us. Which piece do you choose on Monopoly? Always the top hat. Why would anyone pick anything else? Well, <laughs> interesting. You aspire to you be one be... of the landed gentry. <laughs> you should have played class struggle like me as a child. Uh, Joe, you've heard that from Catherine. Uh, you, you heard my question to her about some of the difficult tensions here between sort of economist purity and politicians' sort of pragmatism uh, and electorate's resistance. What Give us a reason to be cheerful. Well, I think that the, the irony of the policy is that despite it being really very old, and as we've already gone through, actually we're still in the really early stages of this discussion, uh, particularly from a policy-wise, particularly within this country at the moment. So the reason that I'm cheerful is the mere fact that we're having this discussion today, the fact that land value was in, uh, in some form in all three uh, major party manifestos this year. That's the reason that I'm cheerful. Thank you very much for uh, joining us, and you've given us a reason to be cheerful. You're very welcome. So, Ed, having heard all that, is land value tax a reason to be cheerful? Is it something for us to get excited about? Well, my head definitely hurts, I'd say. <laughs> um, look, I, I think it is definitely worth thinking about how you put the, the, the very convincing principles that we heard from our guests into practice. I think, I think both Joe and Catherine were pretty compelling about the reasons to be thinking about doing this for the housing crisis, for more progressive taxation, taxing unearned wealth, all of those things. Um, one point I'd make is is just this thing about the incredibly unequal ownership of land. I think there's some figure from a from a uh, rather good website on this called WhoOwnsEngland.org. Twenty four dukes own one million acres uh, of land. You know the scale of of, of a small number of people owning a, a huge section of rural land. You know I do think that you know a lot of that land probably isn't being properly used, just being sat on. Um, you don't we need to make the put that land into to good use? Yeah, I think that makes sense. Because when you talk about dukes, and I saw the word marquises on the piece of paper as well, I mean, it makes you feel like you're living in the Middle Ages. Well, sometimes it does feel like that, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, marquises, the rank below duke, own nearly 100,000 acres uh, and received a lot in public farm subsidies. You know, there's, there's quite a lot. Mm. It feels like there's quite a lot of territory here that we need to be thinking about. What, what, did, what did you think about it? Something that seems to come up week after week uh, across different topics is um, how important home building is, how a lot of things would just be fixed if we could build more houses or go some way to be becoming fixed. So so there's that. But then there's also that point, I think Catherine mentioned, um, that we are so hooked on home ownership yeah. and speculation in this country. And and I, I think there's a problem 
especially you know at the, the the less rich end of homeowners because they've been taught this is your pension and these aren't the people who are accustomed to having um money around to invest in things like middle class or more sort of financially uh, affluent people are and and just the, I, I suppose you know you think these people are going to get hit, but they're not the people who are going to get. The well, hit that's the what hardest, you've got to be right? careful yeah. about. And the other thing we didn't mention is this issue of people who are so-called asset rich, but not necessarily income rich. You know, mm. in other words, if it's a charge each year, but it's on your asset, yeah. you've got to make sure you don't, you know, that those people can afford to pay, or you find some way of rolling it up when they sell the property or, or whatever. So, so you, it's got to be done carefully. That's why I'm wondering whether you don't begin at the sort of larger landowner end or the you know some of the companies that are sitting on lots of land which are also there because that's the awful thing when they just sit on land waiting for it to go up in value so it's a good time to build and it makes the housing crisis worse yeah 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 Uh, i like the concept of taxing wealth over income that seems smart um and i also thought you know they both talk about the how it could just be very chaotic and disruptive to introduce it i thought just throw it in with brexit if anything's gonna if everything's gonna go to pot everything's up in the air yeah throw that into the mix not a bad idea i've got one final suggestion don't we need to play a christmas game of class struggle Let's do it. Yes. <laughs> we can have a Christmas team outing and we're going to play a game. Of, we better get a, told her a copy of Glass Struggle and we'll play it and we'll report back. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Please share your thoughts on the stuff we've been talking about today. You can email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. And we can come back to it next week. Uh, on Votes at 16 and Youth Politics from last week, Laura O'Connor writes, Hello, first time listening to the podcast. I just wanted to touch upon uh, political classes for high school level students. I'm from Ireland, but live in the UK. In the Republic of Ireland, we had mandatory civics classes from the ages of 12 to 15, followed by a state exam, which is similar to the GCSEs. Most students of that age also did a state exam in history too. Whilst this has sadly uh, not resulted in all Irish students becoming political experts, there is a general understanding of how the government works, the role of the Senate and the President, and a good explanation of the uh, Irish voting system, hashtag PR, and and the different political parties. It might surprise you both to hear that even the European Union was covered too. So regardless of whether the voting age is low to 16, civic stroke political classes are important. Politics impacts everyone, so it should be accessible to everyone too. I'm with Laura. I'm totally with Laura on that. We've also got Timothy Brown, who's 
uh, emailed in. I'm a big fan of the podcast, but I felt I could really relate to this week's one on Votes at 16. I was one of the many 16 and 17-year-olds in Scotland who were given the vote. I, like many of my peers engaged in this campaign, and made a well-informed choice. And although the referendum didn't turn out the way I wanted it to, the spirit of the vote was positive and informative, and it politicised a new generation who now contribute to Scottish politics. As you know, this was not repeated in the Brexit vote, and I was two months too young to vote in that. Again, it didn't go the way I wanted, but it was noticeably darker in tone and rife with misinformation. I feel the refusal at the outset of the campaign to extend the franchise set the tone for a much more negative and backward-looking campaign than we had in 2014. These two examples show the case for votes at 16. It leads to a campaign in a politics that is far more vibrant and engaged, and denying the right only serves to alienate the youth and stifle many of the positive aspects there can be in politics. I, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, we heard that from Ruth Davidson about her experience in Scotland as well. And the disappointing thing was after last week's episode, you, you went along to the House of Commons for the debate and you didn't get to vote on it. And it got talked out. You know, so that this makes is, like, is that filibustering? You basically, they, 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 I think they, they filibustered the bill before a bit, which went, they eventually went through without a vote, but there was enough time had elapsed that the next one, it just, it just makes a mockery of the whole thing. That's the mm. problem, doesn't it? Um, I've got an, an opposite point of view from Harry Drew, who says, I thought the debate about voting was a bit one-sided. I'm 18, but when I was 16, I was happy not to vote, uh, not because I wasn't politically active, but because the vast majority of people my age weren't politically aware. Um, if you actually went to a school and asked 16-year-olds to name five politicians, I really think you'd be surprised at how little they know. Some friends of mine still don't know who the Prime Minister is. Um, clearly, the 16-year-olds you've interacted with are already politically aware, which is great, but most really aren't. Ed was right when he said the issue uh, is divided amongst young people. And uh, also, as for the point that if you can produce a child, you should be able to vote. In many European countries, the age of consent is 14, such as Italy, where I'm emailing from. Should 14-year-olds be able to vote? Where does it end? I think 18 is the right age. I know you probably won't read this email, but I felt like giving the other side of this argument, Harry Drew. Well, in your face, Harry, I did feel like reading it. <laughs> right back at you. Yeah. Um, but look, in a way, I think it is worth saying, you know, we don't pretend to be balanced on this podcast. Mm because we're advocating ideas. But I think it is good to have other points of view, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've also got uh, Natasha Johansson. Uh, hey, guys, love the podcast. This is on a different subject. And you mentioned Meet Free Mondays uh, last week. Uh, here's an idea. Uh, is it, isn't it the time the world went vegan where possible? It's an idea me and my partner, yes, we are worthy urbanite millennials, are trying at the moment, about 95% of the time, after we found out about the horrific carbon footprint of animal products. Don't get me wrong, I love meat and cheese and chocolate, but it's hard to justify when being vegan reduces a person's carbon footprint by something like 70%. Admittedly, it does make you 70% more miserable and give you <laughs> 70%, you wouldn't agree with that, 70% less choice, but gives you 70% more of a moral high ground. So swings and roundabouts, she says, triple exclamation mark. Nothing meat, better than a self-aware vegan. Exactly. Meat is also responsible for large areas of rainforest being cut down for land used to graze cattle or grow cattle feed. Why not just grow food for people. So she is definitely into the meat-free Monday and that idea. She also says, disclaimer, I'm still eating turkey at Christmas and the little pigs in blankets, although I'll try and get everything locally sourced. It's about doing as much as you can. Well, we should issue an open invitation if Paul McCartney from Meat Free Monday Definitely. wants to. Definitely. I think if that happened... Paul McCartney, best known for Meat Free Monday. <laughs> I think we couldn't invite him to my house to record the podcast. Oh, because I'd love to have Paul McCartney I think on. we'd have to go to him. Look behind you. 
there are three shelves of books about the Beatles, and well, I think be fine. I think it would be like that episode of Alan Partridge where he goes around to the fans' house and it just feels very disturbed to see images of him all over the place. I think it would be quite scary for Paul McCartney to be in Paul this room. Paul would love to have you on. Um, well, guess who I've heard from? Guess, go on, tell me. Prasenjit Lal. Ah, Prasenjit Lal. Who says, with respect to Ed's apology... It is wholeheartedly accepted. Oh, present This has been an ongoing uh, story strand, a story arc in the podcast. Um, Presenjit saw you at the theatre and you gave him the short shrift. Apparently, the short shrift. (laughs) Um, Or the cold shoulder. With respect to Ed's apology, wholeheartedly accepted. However... Oh. And this this does make you think of that old saying, like uh, anything that proceeds but in a sentence should be yeah, disregarded. Yeah. Um, he did erroneously accuse me of misremembering the play we both attended. After trawling through the internet with the help of my friend Rita, I found a review which indeed proves that poo was involved. Well, bully for you, presented. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'll see your presenter and raise you a David Spencer. Okay. Uh, dear Jeff and Ed, just thought I'd add to what has no doubt become a growing tome of anecdotes regarding Ed's visits to the theatre. <laughs> Earlier this year, my wife and I went to see this house at the Garrick. It was the last night, this was about the 1970s Labour government. It was the last night the play was on and happened to be one of our first nights out together since our son was born. It's as a result of this that I suspect alcohol may have played a part in what happened that evening. At the interval I popped to the loo while my wife went to the bar. On my return to the bar, my wife practically sprinted towards me and shouted at me in a tone that can only be described as ecstatic in nature, that she'd just seen none other than Ed. As they party members and big Ed fans, ecstasy was of course the wholly appropriate emotion. I obviously replied asking where Ed was right now. It was at this point that we looked round to see Ed and the ever-tolerant Justine looking right at us, perhaps wondering why someone had just shouted Ed's name when he was literally no more than a metre away. He gave us a friendly smile and went back to chatting with Justine and the others in their group. Although I appreciate that Presenjit may have legitimate cause for complaint, surely this can be now be balanced out. This is where balance is necessary. This can be balanced out by this example of nothing less than perfect behaviour at the theatre on this Ed's is good. part. I'm getting a well-rounded picture of you as a, as a patron of the arts, of the theatrical exactly, arts. Exactly, exactly. I think that Dave is much more representative than Presenjit. And you're a big theatre fan? Yeah, quite like... Would you, uh, would you consider Panto? Being we, in the Panto. If we got the right offer, we could be the Ugly Sisters. Or we could be like a horse, yeah. the pantomime horse. <laughs> as long as I could be the front of the horse, we might be in business. <laughs> Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. So we've come on a day trip and this is a reunion of sorts. Ed, do you want to tell me who is sitting immediately to your right? Well, my, sitting immediately to my right, and it's so kind of him to make the time, is David Axelrod, uh, who worked with me during the 2015 general election. Um, and is even better known for his role uh, in working with President Obama. So did you see Ed as the British Obama then? Um, was that- <laughs> yes. David said the thing that made me feel best after 2015, which is you're never as dumb as you look when you lose or as smart as you look when you win. And That's absolutely I've, true. I've, I've carried that with me uh, ever since. I did 150 campaigns, so I had a long experience in winning and losing and uh, concluded at the end of it that winning was better. But that wasn't necessarily always a certification of who was the smartest candidate or campaign. Sure. Um, can I ask a little about Obama? Um, 
what did you? Why did you think this guy? I mean, what was it about him that made you think, oh, this this is the guy? Well, let me say, I met him when he was a returning law student. Uh, he came back to Chicago to run a voter registration drive, and a woman named Betty Lou Saltzman, who's a, like a doyenne of liberal politics in Chicago, called me and said, "You got to meet this guy. He's like a remarkable guy." And I said, "I'm gonna, I'm happy to meet him." But this was 1992, mind you. So why do you want me to meet him? She said, I think he could be the first black president of the United States. So now you can imagine when I go to the track, I take Betty Lou with me and she places <laughs> all my bets for me. So Because, you know, who knew then? And I met with him I, and I was and what did you think? deeply impressed, but I, didn't, I wasn't humming hail to the chief. You know, yeah. I, I didn't see him. But, but, do, do, but here's, what, here's what I saw in him. Uh... The world of politics, as I've experienced it, divides into two categories. One are the people who run for public office because they want to be something, and that's a fairly large cohort. And then there's a smaller and more admirable group of people who run for public office because they want to do something. This was a guy who had been president of the Harvard Law Review and could have written his ticket at any corporation, any law firm in America. And he comes back to Chicago to run a voter registration drive and practice in a little firm civil rights and labor rights law. And I thought, that's a certification of something. And he said, I want to be about something. I want to be uh, about something larger than myself. And so I'm thinking of going into uh, public service, maybe running for office. And I was really impressed by that, you know, because uh, he, as I said, he could have done anything and he chose to do this. And, and he was clearly incredibly bright and um, able. Um, so, you know, from the very beginning, I saw that. But I didn't even when he got a, I, I mean, there was a moment in Boston in, in 2004 when he gave this keynote speech at the Democratic Convention and just took the place by storm and I was on the floor of the convention hall and I said to one of my colleagues, you know, his life just changed and ours maybe too, but I never expected in 2008 that he'd be a candidate for president and circumstances just revealed themselves, you know, he was an anti-war person uh, and uh, that separated him from many of the other candidates including Hillary Clinton he was really, he represented a clean break from George W. Bush and the politics of Washington. And uh, so, you know, over time, between 2004 and 2008, it occurred to me, yeah, this could be the time. He could be, he could be in the right place at the right time, the right person, and that turned out to be true. What was the thing that he had to learn from you? In what way did you have to change him? Something I've heard said about him is that he has this kind of professorial, slightly aloof way about him. Is that some, the type of thing that you would work on with him? Yeah, although, you know, what was interesting to me was he wrote this wonderful book, Dreams from My Father, an autobiography uh, about his uh, his early years uh, and it was so beautifully written and and he uh, he's a great storyteller and yet he'd get into audiences and he would be very uh, as you say professorial and focusing on um, sort of the, the the core of issues even though he would every day he'd call me from the campaign trail this is when he was running for the Senate 
and he'd tell me stories of people he met and how moved he was. And so at some point, 2004, 2004, at some point during that campaign, I said, why are you not telling these stories in your speeches more readily? Why aren't you animating them with? Um, And he made that adjustment. But that, you know, honestly, the I think uh, the thing that concerned me the most was that he had never he had lost a race badly for Congress in 2000, but he had never really been in that competitive uh, a race. And uh, in the Senate race, we were ahead by 50 points, and he let his opponent get under his skin. I remember turning. There was a guy named Alan Keyes. It was a crazy set of circumstances. Obama was running for the Senate in Illinois. His opponent, who was considered a quite a, a comer in the Republican Party, was uh, eliminated because of a personal scandal, and they had to replace him. And they brought in this guy Alan Keyes, who's kind of a kind of a crazy right wing guy from Maryland, but he was African American. So they like imported their own black candidate thinking this would be a clever stratagem but the guy was crazy so obama was ahead by 50 points but keith was very irritating and he let himself get irritated and to the point where i turned on the tv one night and there and there's obama jabbing keys in the chest at a parade like menacing him and i said what, what the hell is this and he said, that guy just gets on my nerves, you know. Yeah. And um, so my concern was every day when you're running for president, Ed knows this, uh, when you're running for high office, every day there are provocations. And every day people are getting on your nerves and you can't, and you can't pop off, you know. And so uh, I, was, I was worried. When I wrote him a memo about the campaign, I... I um, you know, I wrote a strategy memo before 2006. I said the big question is, uh, to me, is whether you're Muhammad Ali or Floyd Patterson. Uh, Floyd Patterson was a great heavyweight boxer, and he was champion briefly until someone hit him on the chin, Sonny Liston, and he went down in the first round. And I said, I don't know if you can take a punch. And what he developed, uh, I think, over time was the ability to take a punch in a way that I never imagined he he would. Uh, and that resiliency was absolutely necessary. For example, he, of- he lost the uh, New Hampshire primary to Hillary Clinton unexpectedly, didn't he, after winning in Iowa yes. in 2008? You know, it's it, interesting you mentioned that we're, we're closing in on the 10-year ten, ten anniversary of the Iowa caucuses, which were the absolute... Um, uh, pivotal point in Obama's political trajectory. But the, our assumption was if you win the Iowa caucuses, that five days later you'll win the New Hampshire primary and effectively end the race. And we came to New Hampshire like a conquering army. And we, and meanwhile, Hillary Clinton, who had been humbled in Iowa, uh, appeared like someone who had been humbled. And, and that humbling was very flattering to her. I mean, she she became a much more appealing candidate, and she won the New Hampshire primary, and it was stunning. You learn more about people in defeat than you learn in victory. What I learned about Obama was that he was always the calmest and coolest man in the room or person in the room when he won, no, when he no lost. drama, Obama. No, yeah, and he pulled the group together. He went out there and made a speech after. The next morning after the New Hampshire primary, 
uh, we were driving to Boston for what was supposed to be a victory fundraiser and all of, you know, and we get th there and everybody's like stunned and depressed and thinking, well, maybe this isn't really going to happen. Uh, and he stood up uh, and he gave off the cuff this wonderful speech about the fact that we were like Icarus flying too close to the sun. And he said, this isn't the way change happens. You know, change involves uh, grinding it out day after day on the ground, mobilizing people. And we didn't do, we didn't do what we should have done in New Hampshire. He said, but, but let me tell you why this fight continues and why it, it's so important that we win. And he then gave this really inspiring speech about, uh, uh, about, where the country was and where it, where we wanted to take it. And uh, by the end, people were like on their feet and cheering. And, and you know, this was on three hours sleep. Um, you know, he, every single time, whether it was in the campaign or during the presidency, when we had setbacks, he was the guy who rallied everyone around him. And that is a wonderful quality of leadership. That's something we wanted to ask you about, actually, because the, the, the title of the podcast is Reasons to be Cheerful. And what we're trying to find is ideas for progressives to feel hopeful about in this day and age. And um, that campaign, once it transitioned... How long are you hoping to sustain this, uh, <laughs> this program? Seven, seven weeks. So far. <laughs> um, we, we, um, thinking about when he went from from um, the race to become candidate to the race to become president, it felt like such a hopeful campaign, an optimistic campaign. Yes. Um, do you think that's something you can run at every election or, or are the different points in history at which a campaign like that can fly? Well, I can tell you that in 2012, it was a much different campaign because we were running for re-election. In 2011, uh, Nate Silver, the uh, analytics whiz of the New York Times, late of the New York Times now, um, wrote a piece on the magazine cover of the New York Sunday magazine saying, and the, it said, is Obama toast? And, you know, he kind of projected that our chances of re-election weren't very good. And we had a very tough re-election campaign with Mitt Romney. And, um, you know, it was a much more traditional campaign where we made a very strong case, uh, not just for us, but against him. Um, it was different, you know, and it reflected the four hard years we had gone through. So every campaign is different. I have a theory that, uh, you know, my, I wrote the, the essence of my advice to Obama in 2006 before he ran was that um, in presidential elections and particularly in succession elections when a, an incumbent is leaving, the incumbent defines the election and people never pick the, the replica of what they have. They always pick the remedy, someone whose qualities as much as their positions uh, red uh, redresses the, the, the deficiencies in the person who is serving. And Obama was a great counterpoint to George W. Bush, and I thought that he was the clearest break from Bush. In what way, precisely? Well, you know, Bush was seen as sort of uh, uh, as sort of bombastic, divisive, that, a guy who really didn't see the nuance uh, and complexity in the world and so on. I honestly think after eight years, uh, one of the reasons Trump run, won is because Obama was very rational. He saw the nuance and complexity in the world and tried to address it. People were tired of complexity and nuance. And, they, and that opened the door to the strong man who said, uh, you know what, I'll just take care of it. Don't worry about it. You know, all of these problems, 
I know how to get the stuff done. I'll just do it. Um, so if that theory is right, and it's more, uh, it was more uh, devised for these succession elections, but it's somewhat true in in um, uh, in elections in which incumbents are running for re-election, then you would think that people would uh, search for someone in 2020 in the U.S. who is more of a unifying figure, who appeals to those common values and concerns that Americans have instead of mining and exploiting our divisions as we've seen with Trump. So, uh, yeah, I do think that it's possible that another campaign like that uh, could could win, though you know the 2008 campaign, and I, I don't. I'm not just saying this um, because uh, I was lucky enough to be involved in it. Uh, but the, the 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 candidate, the moment, the mood of the country, uh, there were so many things that came together that made it. You know, to me, the most inspiring uh, campaign that I had seen since. Uh, since 1968 when Robert Kennedy ran for president. And I told Obama before that election, that's what we should strive for. We should strive for a campaign that really challenges people to imagine what we could be. And um, and, and what do you learn, David, about the um, difficulty of sustaining that hope change message well, the in office? Yes, it's very, very difficult, especially because the genius of the Republicans and a fellow named Mitch McConnell is the Republican leader in the Senate, still the Republican leader in the Senate, uh, although I'm, there are days I'm sure he wishes that he were doing something else. But uh, he, uh, you know, in 2008, uh, Democrats won a second successive huge victory, not just for president, but in Congress. And so when we arrived there, we had uh, uh, nearly a veto-proof majority in the uh, Senate, a huge majority in the House. And McConnell's inspiration was to say he won, uh, Obama won because he promised to get past the politics of partisan division and really work on the problems of the country. And McConnell, uh, I think rightly, diabolically in my view, uh, concluded that uh, if we deprive him of that partisan cooperation, we will deprive him of his ability to have fulfilled the major promise of his campaign, and uh, it was it was a te- I think it was a a terrible thing to do because we were in the midst of this economic crisis that really required cooperation, but nonetheless he enforced it with uh, great uh, efficiency, and he forced Obama to become a more partisan figure and work. Uh, only with Democrats, because Democrats, by and large, were the only ones who were willing to work uh, with him. So, um, you know, the, the Obama did bring change, big change uh, in many ways, uh, you know, whether it was the Affordable Care Act or financial reform or, um, you know, in gay rights or... Uh, climate change. You know, climate change, absolutely. But um, on that uh, on that on that overarching uh, chain uh, notion of uh, cooperation, he wasn't able to, and that became a point against him. So hope and change. We hope was hope was provided to people who needed health care. Hope was provided to people who worried about issues like climate change. Hope and 
change were provided was provided to uh, you know uh, gay people who were serving in the military uh, who could now live their lives as they uh, as they w- wanted to and not pretend they were something they weren't. I mean, change came in a lot of different ways, uh, and hope was provided to a lot of people. But on the overarching promise of uh, of getting past this sort of withering partisanship, uh, that was denied. Is there anything you look back on um, and think we? I wish we'd done that. Yeah, you know, it's so funny. We used to mock uh, George W. Bush for not being able to say what mistakes he had made. And, but um, it, 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 you find it hard once you serve yeah. because you make the best decision yeah. you can make in the moment. Uh, I'm sure that there, there are things that uh, we, w- we would have done differently. I'll tell you one, um, on the health care, um, you know, we, it was a lengthy process. Republicans, since Donald Trump has become president, have tried to repeal uh, Obama's health care law several times, and they failed. But each time, they did it in lightning strikes without any uh, public hearings, without a long period of discussion, because they knew that if they held their proposal up to light, it would be very controversial and unpopular. Um, uh, the Affordable Care Act, any change in health care in America is very, very difficult. We held the thing open for months and months and months trying to get Republican cooperation on the bill. And, you know, there, was the, there were these tantalizing signs that maybe this person might come, that person might come. We included 150 Republican amendments in our health care plan. Um, but at the end of the day, what, what happened was we held it out so long that it gave them more time to organize publicly against right. it. So. That was a so you overestimated the degree of cooperation you would get. Basically, that that, that was one. Um, you know, I think in the first two years when I was there, um, we used the president too much as a spokesperson for various government initiatives, and not you. We didn't use him as we should have, which is as a narrator of a larger story about where he was trying to take the country. And um, so, if I would do, I would change that. I would have used him less as a, uh, as the, you know, there were uh, there were people in the White House who had a theory that, uh, you know, you have to announce something every day to show that you're Initiative. making progress. Initiative. But what that does is simply, you know, it, it deadens people's um, interest in in what you have to say and. Um, it becomes very prosaic. So, yeah, I would I would do that differently. And I think about, is there any way we could have picked off Republicans more effectively? I mean, at some point, you know, it, it became clear we weren't going to get them, and, and we probably could have tried harder for longer. But I'm not sure it would have made – I think right. there was a policy being enforced right. that we couldn't penetrate. And let's fast forward then, because we're, we're talking a year – um, almost exactly a year since Donald Trump uh, became it's president. It's only been a year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, the the whole world has aged. I think yes. we've had a lot in this year. Yeah. Um, were you surprised about his election? Yeah. Um, I was surprised, and then in retrospect, I was aggravated at myself for being surprised. Um, I was. I mean, I was aggravated in part because 
of my own theory because he was the most uh, uh, he was the most uh, clear antidote, antidote yeah. to yeah. Obama. But the the other uh, thing was that um, I think that you know media commentators, which it was what I am now, and uh, and and elites generally could not imagine Donald Trump winning, and I think it's largely because uh, you know we live in um, in these silos now. Uh, you saw it with Brexit, where you know people live in metropolitan areas and they speak to themselves, and they and then people live in rural areas or small towns, they speak to themselves. I happen to have a home in Southwest Michigan, and. This were, is one of the states that voted for for Trump. For Trump, and all of my neighbors had Trump signs in their yards. And and let me assert that they are not toothless, ignorant racists. Yeah. They're thoughtful people, but they are disgusted with Washington. They are disgusted with uh, what they consider an economic system that's conspiring against them, or is rigged, as Trump said, against them. And they didn't particularly love Trump, but they saw him as a, kind of a big message to Washington. I think many of them weren't sure that he actually could win. Um, but those signs should have meant something to me. So, yes, what I What did you think of the signs? What did you think about the signs when you saw them? You just thought, well, they... You know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you exactly yeah. what happened. My wife, Susan, called me and she the weekend before the election, and she said, you know, I'm up in Michigan, and um, everybody's got these signs. Are you sure that... Uh, that Hillary is going to win. Michigan has been solidly democratic, <laughs> and um, I said, uh, "Well, you know, there the analytics guys, the Clinton campaign, say she's going to win the state by eight, eight <laughs> points." So you know, uh, I, I that that's all I can tell you. And so, you know, one thing you learn. I mean, I've been in politics all my life, either as a reporter or a strategist. You get a feeling in the pit of your stomach, you know. And so, my stomach told me one thing. My and and my as you guys were, were on a podcast, not television. My stomach is ample. <laughs> it uh, and it told me we'll one post thing. Post a photo of it on, on not necessary, unnecessary, <laughs> but uh, you know, all of the data said something else. And what it speaks to is how flaw- you've we've had our experiences here in this country. You've had yeah. your experience yeah. with it painfully. Yeah. Um, you know, data is only as good as the model you create. And if the model changes, uh, then, uh, you know, changes because turnout patterns change, data can be wrong. How did it feel to you as somebody who has spent this career running sophisticated, um, careful political campaigns to watch what looked like a circus externally um, with the Trump campaign, you know, figures like Steve Bannon and Roger Stone, people kind of and, and involving people like Alex Jones, who are like sort of on the peripheries of, of craziness. I mean, do you feel like the, the world isn't what you thought it was? Why do you say the periphery? I think they're solidly <laughs> in that that corner. I, um, you know, on the one hand, um, what I, I'm, what I saw was. Um, Craziness. On the other hand, what I saw was brilliance uh, in that Trump understood the modern media environment better than any candidate that I've seen and understood how to command it. He understood, first of all, that if you light yourself on fire, you're going to get covered. And all through the... Prim- ah, I should have done that. All through- <laughs> yes. 
I'm sure that 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 would have been uh, yeah exactly yeah self immolation exactly uh. but uh, why didn't we think of yeah that? no exactly. but um, uh, he but he really um, you know during the primary campaign he would get hours of coverage because he would say outrageous things he was interesting. Uh, he was audacious. He went everywhere. I mean, he would go on every network. He was the only guy I've ever seen who could call up like Sunday programs in the States and get put on television on the phone. He wouldn't because he understood he could he could filibuster when he was on the phone more either that or he liked to do these things in his pajamas. I don't know. <laughs> but I, I think it was that he understood that. Um, and he also understood who he was speaking to. I mean, he understood who his base was. Uh, and that, uh, and he understood that there was a mood for change out there, and ultimately he won because he was, you know, the largest cohort of vote uh, of voters when asked who what what was it that motivated their votes that they wanted change in Washington, he got eighty three percent of that vote she against was. Hillary Clinton. She was an avatar of the status quo, yeah. and um, he under, they understood all that. You know, and, you know, <laughs> I mean, the other element of their campaign that we couldn't see was what they were doing analytics-wise in targeting their voters and coincidentally what the Russians were doing uh, to target their voters. Talk, talk about the core of his appeal around economic discontent, though, David, because this is, you know, this is true of him. Personally, I think it's true of Brexit. People focus on the issues like immigration and Europe in relation to Brexit, which, of course, were big things. But but at the core, it's the sense that the system is screwed and screwing uh, that. Yeah, absolutely. Look, um, we, we live in these revolutionary times where technology and globalization is transforming uh, developed economies. And, um, and there are winners and there are losers. And that dividing line very much defines, uh, you know, who voted to leave and who voted to remain, who voted for Trump and who voted for Clinton. And, um, and I, you know, I, I think that that continues. I also think there's a cultural overlay and issues like immigration figure, which is so interesting to me that uh, in the states and as well as, as in uh, Britain, in those areas where immigration is... Uh, less pervasive. There is there was greater concern about immigration and in those places where there are more immigrants. There was less concern uh, about that issue, and um, because there was this sense that somehow these immigrants were gaming the system, taking advantage, getting stuff stuff from the government that that they were paying that these people these aggrieved people were paying for. I mean Trump understood that whole mentality and he abetted it and he he uh, you know he threw logs on that fire every single day uh, and he continues to do that to this day with his base he's not very popular he's the least popular president after a year um, I think in the history of polling uh, but his base is very faithful remember Donald Trump said uh, during the campaign that I could go out on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone in broad daylight and my supporters would still stick with me. Thank he God he hasn't, right. he hasn't tested that proposition, thank <laughs> Every God. Every other proposition but he, yeah, but he certainly has proven the theory. And, and tell us what you think of the response of 
the Democrats, and equally, I think it could probably apply here to the response to, of, of some people to Brexit. I mean, do you think that, by and large, the Democrats have understood the Trump appeal, why it happened, those people who are your neighbours in Michigan? How far down the road of sort of understanding and therefore overcoming the Trump phenomenon are they? You know, I, I think there's still this big divide. Um, I think the difference... And so, you know, and there's still these cultural biases both ways. Um, uh, you know, I, I think the great mistake of the Democratic Party in uh, 2016 was that the message seemed to be we've got minorities, we've got women, we've got young people, so we really don't need you, uh, white working class people. And white working class people heard the message and said, okay, well, we don't need you either. And we're going to go with this guy who says he's going to fight for us. Um, that was a mistake. The absence of, uh, uh, you know, recognition of concerns about the economy uh, and some other issues that, but particularly the economy hurt the Democratic Party. Um, but I will say this, we just had an election in the U.S. Uh, in the past week. Uh, it was, um, uh, you know, the biggest one was in Virginia which is, uh, uh, it, it used to be a solidly uh, Republican state. It's turned. Uh, but uh, the turnout in, uh, in the suburbs, which are the swing areas still in American politics, went overwhelmingly Democratic and very heavy. Um, and that uh, turned everything in Virginia and... You saw the same trend in other places around the country where there were special elections going on. So that's a good sign, basically. I think that uh, if I were Republicans, I'd be very, very nervous. In 2018, we have congressional elections. The entire U.S. House of Representatives is up. The swing districts are almost entirely in suburban areas. And I think uh, this could be a harbinger of, of some significant change in 2018. And as you view some of the trends that we see in the Democratic Party, and to an extent we see this here as well, uh, the Bernie Sanders phenomenon from 2016, the fact that after the election, a number of um, Democratic senators are now signing on to single-payer healthcare, so a, a, like a national health service-style system, does that desire for radicalism give you encouragement? <laughs> does it make you think, you know, that, that, that uh, there is a sense of... Uh, does that give you a sense of hope? Well, the, I'm not talking about the personality so much uh, here, but I'm talking about the, the sort of uh, policy agenda. I think that the 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 um, the sense of activism and engagement uh, is hopeful for the Democratic Party. Um, you know, I, I, it, it, unless the party engages in a kind of civil war that. Uh, leaves it fractured and dispirited. And the thing about Virginia that was interesting was uh, there was a young guy who ran against the guy who got elected for governor. The guy who got elected governor was what I would describe as sort of a, a solidly centrist candidate. Democrat, yeah. He was a Democrat. Yeah. He he beat a guy in the primary who was a more uh, was supported by Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, more to the left, a very talented guy, Tom Perriello. But uh, the party came together after that. And 
that was one of the questions. Would, would people who had supported this guy, Periello, would they stay home? The answer was no. And he himself campaigned vigorously. So, um, you know, the thing about Donald Trump is that he is a, an asset to the Democratic Party and that people, whatever their differences, are very unified uh, now. And I suspect that going into 2020, that will be the case. The question is who emerges from these, this very complex labyrinthine nominating process, and will it be uh, a Bernie Sanders-type candidate? Will it be someone more of a center-left candidate? That remains to be seen. And if it is a Bernie Sanders candidacy, um, what is the appetite for these swing voters in these suburban areas, for example, for that kind of candidacy? And I think these are things that uh, are going to be pondered between now and then. Just as a matter of interest, would it's maybe an unfair question, would Bernie have won in 2016 if he'd been the nominee? It's really hard for me to say because Bernie had this, uh, he had kind of a, a magic carpet ride in 2016 in that uh, Hillary Clinton wouldn't attack him because she was afraid of alienating his voters. The Republicans wouldn't attack him because they loved that he was attacking Hillary Clinton. Right. So, you know, he had the happy yeah. set of circumstances that allowed him to go through an entire presidential race without anybody ever laying a glove on him. And I just don't know. I don't know what's there. You can't there. Really rewrite history. It's hard, hard to yeah, know. Yeah. I mean, I think he would, it, it would be interesting to see how he fares under live fire. And I just don't know. And what the should the core, if you're thinking about 2020, never mind the candidate, what do you think the core of the Democrats' argument should be? Because this is obviously what you thought about a lot for President uh, Obama or candidate Obama and then President Obama. Well, what, what well, the core well, of that well be? you know, consistent with what I've said earlier, I think that uh, Democratic Party should not uh, uh, assume that the way to beat Trump is to be like Trump and to be as, uh, you know, angry and divisive as Trump. Uh, I think that the candidate who has the best chance to win will be a candidate who does uh, appeal to those things that unite Americans that uh, those common concerns. And I think it's essential that people speak to the genuine um, uh, sort of tectonic shifts that are going on in, uh, in our societies and particularly in our economies that have created winners and losers and offer genuine and big ideas for what uh, uh, our strategy is to deal with that. Because Fundamental to the uh, American project is this notion that if you work hard, you can get ahead and your kids can get ahead. And, and people have stopped believing that in parts of the country. Uh, and those pe alienated people have turned to Donald Trump. Uh, and he's offered what, in my view, are false answers to that, those questions. They may conclude that by 2020, but Democrats still have to offer a plausible alternative. So I think a candidate has to come with ideals and ideas uh, that offer an antidote to Trumpism. Do you see a, a positive role for social media? Because at the moment we're seeing Trump's tweets and we're thinking about fake news and Russian interference. But in the Obama campaigns, it was it's the first time it was really uh, utilised. I think uh, social media probably was very useful in these campaigns that we just saw. It can be a force for good and it can be a force for disruption uh, that is not good. Um, and um, uh, But... Uh, if you have 
if if there is energy uh, organizing that energy on uh, through social media is, is valuable so yeah you know if, if I, have deep, I have deep concerns right. by the way you know about um what social media we're not only undergoing an economic sort of revolution but technology also has brought this communications revolution that has allowed us to target and segment in ways that are positive in terms of organizing but ways are negative that are negative as well um in terms of misinformation mis uh, you know fake news and and uh the inflammation of our differences so you know, um, in a sense, uh, one of the things I think a candidate's going to have to say is we have to re-knit together the American community. We can't live in virtual reality communities where everybody agrees with us and everybody outside is somehow alien. If uh, President Obama had come to you and said, David, I want to tweet, why would Kim Jong-un insult me by calling me old when I would never capitalize, call him short and fat? Oh, well, I try so hard to be his friend and maybe someday that will happen. Would you advise him that was a good tweet or a bad tweet to send? Well, first of all, I would say you're not that old, Mr. President. Don't, yeah. don't take it personally. But uh, if I were Donald Trump now, I mean, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't know how to respond to, the, you know, uh, sometimes I feel like a six-year-old. I'm in a, I have this recurring dream that I'm in this, 747 and a six-year-old has slipped into the pilot's seat and I'm strapped in row 27C, you know, hoping that he'll somehow figure out how to land the plane without crashing it or that someone will jump in the co-pilot's seat and take the controls and uh, uh, let him think that he's flying uh, the plane. Uh, but, you know, it's astonishing. Uh, this is, you know, Abraham Lincoln had a practice, and that practice was when he wrote letters in anger, he would put them in his desk for a week before he sent them. And he wouldn't tweet afterwards. No, he didn't. He never <laughs> tweeted. That was another rule in the Lincoln <laughs> White House. But he took the uh, letter out and, re and reread it, and if he felt, still felt like it was wise to send it, yeah. he'd send it. Uh, this, there's no filter between Donald Trump's impulses and his Twitter account, nothing. And there's no one in his orbit who will, who can get him not to do it. Um, you know, and he thinks this is a tremendous boon to him. Uh, but you know, uh, I always felt when I was in the white house that the words of a president can send armies marching and markets tumbling. So you'd better use them carefully. Um, that's gone out the window. And, you know, one hopes that it doesn't send armies marching and markets tumbling. But I'm not sure that the way to engage Kim Jong-un is to be as crazy as he sometimes appears to be. Is, uh, is there reason to be cheerful the prospect of impeachment? I am not cheerful about that. And I'll tell you why. Um, you know, one of the great things, damages that I think Trump has done is he's degrading our democratic institutions. I'm one who believes that hey, you lose an election, the other guy gets to make policy. I don't like the policy. His, ha I think, are disastrous in many ways on climate and some other things. But uh, your institutions need to be need to endure. That that's central to the democratic project. He denigrates court, the courts. He tries to illegitimate the courts, uh, the media even the Congress, 
his predecessors. Uh, and, you know, these are author- author- authoritarian instincts. And um, so my thing is don't let Donald Trump goad you into following him down that path. There may be grounds for impeachment someday, but they haven't been proven yet. And if impeachment just becomes a political tool that you use because you don't like what a president's doing, then the next president's going to be subject to that same threat. So I think that I've been counseling uh, Democrats to uh, not to use the impeachment word. Uh, There's a fellow running... uh, uh, ads right now, a billionaire from California, you know, calling on people to sign up for, you know, impeachment. Uh, I think I said yesterday, I think it's a vanity project that is really unhelpful at this point. Um, but uh, down the road, you know, but I, I have to say, having seen impeachment uh, trials, it's, it's not great for the country to go through that. So, you know, I have mixed feelings about it may come. But I'm assuming Donald Trump will be president in 2020. And last question for me. Um, what Are you cheerful despite it all? Well, give us, a, give us a reason to be cheerful. I think people are a reason to be cheerful. You know, the thing about democracy is that it, it is in some ways a self-correcting process. I was uh, cheered on Tuesday by the turnout. Uh, no one predicted that Democrats would do as well as they did. Um, But more than anything, um, throughout this last year, um, we've seen people mobilize around issues. The reason health care reform lived and and still lives, even though the president's trying to uh, strangle it administratively, uh, is because the American people demanded it. And there was enough reluctance on the part of Republicans in Congress that they kept it. In fact, one anecdote uh, on that score is every year around this time, there is an enrollment period in which people can sign up for these health care exchanges that were created by the the, uh, uh, Obamacare, the health care reform. And twice as many people signed up this year during this period as last year, even though the, the Trump administration closed all the enrollment offices, didn't spend a penny on promoting it, um, shortened the enrollment period uh, by half. So Donald Trump has been a great success, has sort of helped Obamacare, ironically. Well, in that sense, yes. And, uh, and what, I'm, what I'm saying here is I think that the American people have been stirred to action, and that makes me cheerful. I'm a, I wrote a book called Believer. and the, Available and it wasn't, at all good bookshops. What it wasn't, thank you. Uh, and on Amazon and all of that. Uh, but uh, but it's, my belief is not in one person as much as I admire Barack Obama. It's in this system, that uh, this brilliant system that was created uh, called democracy. And uh, as, as Churchill said, uh, uh, you know, a terrible system just better than all the rest. Uh, and it's central to it is is the sense of participation and investment and engagement of citizens. I've seen that engagement grow, and uh, that makes me cheerful. That's a great note on which to end, David. Thank you so much for joining us. People should buy your book, Believer. They should download the Axe Files, yes. uh, which is your um, podcast. Hi- hugely successful 
uh, podcast. Yeah. But we're we're going to do one. We, 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 we need to do that someday. You're on. Thanks so much. Okay, thank you. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Right, Ed, do you want to do the thank yous? Nah. <laughs> Uh, yes, thanks Thanks to Joe Sarling, who I thought was a brilliant explainer-in-chief, and Catherine Cashmore, very appropriately named, uh, who was a great advocate for the land tax. And uh, thanks, presumably, to David Axelrod. We haven't recorded it yet. That's not very professional saying that. Well, uh, we should, think Shouldn't we be pretending? being transparent. Thanks for David Axelrod, who was so fascinating. <laughs> um, Emma Caution produces our podcast with lots of research and backup from Alex Weissbrice and Lindsay Todd. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our ID. Ed Seed provided music and our artwork is made by Emily Power. Do get in touch. We'd love to hear your ideas. Reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Uh, follow us on Twitter at cheerfulpodcast or on Facebook, facebook.com stroke reasons to be cheerful podcast. Um, I was at the theatre recently, uh, saw Oslo, by the way. Well, you're also so- at the theatre recently. With with me the other night we were on stage at the Leicester Square Theatre with Richard Herring. How, how could I forget? Yeah, and I think you've got a taste for treading the boards now. Ed, Ed said you've got to go away and listen to Pod Save America and hear how they do it. So are we going to take the show on the road? Uh, yes, definitely. You just want people to whoop when you come out on stage. I want some whoops. Yeah, well, we are thinking about that, aren't we? We we're, we're thinking about targeting the the most miserable day of the year, aren't we? Mm. Next year, and and yeah, we will we watch will... this space for more for more details. We will save you from that. Um, I think we're done. Are you ready? No, I want it to keep going. Honestly, <laughs> it's such a good episode. I want I know, more. Ed, this is the thing, you know, you're from I a don't, political... I don't want it to end. You're from a political background. In show business, they say, always leave them wanting more. Do you think? Yeah, you don't want to outstay your welcome. Maybe not. Do you don't think person? it should be like a sort of Castro-like, like, you know, three hours? <laughs> Was it Hugo Chavez used to do those state broadcasts that went on? He's over? been... Hugo Chavez. <laughs> He's, He's been Fidel Castro. He's been Jeff Lloyd. He's been Ed Miliband. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.